0: Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty Show. Oh, We've got a great, great program ahead of us today. And in no particular order, some of the things we're going to be talking about is the impending Ice Age, which apparently started yesterday. Uh, I'll have some more details on that coming up in a few moments. Got a special guest joining me in the 8 o'clock hour. Matthew LaRossier will uh, be joining us from the National Firearms Policy uh, Center. I think I got that right. I'm, I may be Matt. I'm sorry if I'm butchering the name. <laughs> but uh, there's a lot going on. Congress is talking about a lot of different things. It's a Firearms Policy Coalition. My apologies. FPC. Uh, Matt LaRossier will be joining us to talk about uh, universal background checks, red flag laws, high-capacity magazine bans. Should be a, a very interesting conversation. Let's start with a little bit of humor, shall we? Although what I'm about to share with you would not result in a lot of humor, in, in most households, Babylon B. The headline says, new app lets your spouse control the car with voice commands. I know you can you can sense the possibility here. Uh, so the Babylon Bee reports uh, a new app lets your spouse control the car with voice commands from the passenger seat. Whenever your spouse says things like, why did you take fifth? It's a lot faster or this way a lot slower than my way. The car will instantly respond to their commands. Uh, backseat driver CEO. Matthew Kyle said there was a ton of demand for this app. Spouses everywhere love making passive-aggressive suggestions the entire time their husband or wife is driving around town. But despite their constant comments on your driving, the car doesn't respond to their helpful suggestions and advice. Well, no longer. Now their comments are just as effective as if they themselves were in the driver's seat. So here's how it works. Some of the specific voice commands programmed into the app include the following. If it hears the words, you're driving too fast, immediately makes the car slow to a crawl. You're driving too slow, causes the car to go as fast as physically possible. Take this other street, it's a shortcut only I know about, makes the car take their strange route that's almost definitely not any faster. If it hears, everyone knows parking's a lot better around the block, it makes the car skip, all the perfectly good parking and drive around to their secret parking. Or if it hears merge, honey merge, it merges. Even if you slam into a semi truck, In early beta testing. The app received rave reviews from spouses in the passenger seat and horrid reviews from spouses in the driver's seat. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Only because it's such a slice of life. You know, I think I think the only thing I've seen that comes close was a few years back, man, quite a few years back. uh, The Onion, one of the original satirical websites, uh, came out with a a list of of cars that are powered by road rage. And it was hilarious. I mean, some of the some of the things they came up with, you know, well, it's got uh, heated seats that especially heat up in the summer and are are leaning forward at an uncomfortable angle. Um, Gosh, what else? Uh, a AM a. radio that only is tuned into uh, talk stations. <laughs> but the names of the cars, the, the Buick Umbridge, the Plymouth Fury, the Dodge Ramit. <laughs> uh, okay, I guess I'm ready to get serious now. So let's talk a little bit about uh, what happened with the weather. Just a couple days ago, I was speaking with somebody who said, you know, I can smell it. I can, I can smell fall in the air. And I've kind of felt that too. You know, the leaves are looking a little tired. They're still green, but they're starting to, they're they are they're changing. And the, the cooler temperatures, the shorter days, shorter nights, or longer nights. Yeah, it's all starting to come together. But when I, see, when I see a headline that says, Old Farmers Almanac predicts snow overload winter across much of the U.S., I'm getting a little concerned. And what really concerns me is, day before yesterday, I know there was some snow on at least one of the high mountain passes uh here in my home state of Utah. Yesterday, because there was rain falling everywhere, there was also snow falling on a number of the passes. I saw a couple of shots of Alta Ski Resort. Um I'm not saying, you know, they had a good packed base of powder there, but it was white. It definitely looked like okay, that is not summer. <laughs> that is whatever that is is the wet it's it's the wet and white opposite of summer. But now I'm seeing the old Farmer's Almanac is forecasting rather, portions of the U.S. will see a lot of snow for this coming winter. In fact, they're predicting what they call a wet and wild 2019 to 2020 winter in the northeastern U.S. Overall, shivers, snowflakes, and strong storms. I mean, come on, kind of come with winter anyways, right? But they say the snow overload will impact northern states in the Midwest and west. Okay, so now they got my attention because that could include my state. The article says in the U.S. this winter will be remembered for strong storms, bringing a steady roof beat of heavy rain and sleet, not to mention piles of snow. The 2020 Old Farmers Almanac is calling for frequent snow events from flurries to no fewer than seven big snowstorms from coast to coast, including two in April for the Intermountain region west of the Rockies. Meanwhile, in the middle of the country, New England will have more wet than white conditions and much of the deep south will be saturated by soakers. As winter rages, the tip of the iceberg will be Florida, the Gulf Coast and Texas, which will bask in pleasant weather. By the way, they're also saying temperatures will plunge from the heartland westward to the Pacific and in the desert southwest, Pacific southwest and Hawaii. But above normal, temperatures are forecast for elsewhere. And the cold in these areas is expected to last at least until Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2020. Almanac editor Janice Stillman said this could feel like the never-ending winter, particularly in the Midwest and east to the Ohio Valley and Appalachians, where the wintry weather will last well into March and maybe even through the first days of spring. After that, temperatures will be quite hot across the eastern two-thirds of the country in spring and summer In Canada, they say that temperatures will bear or will be above the uh, above normal everywhere except southern British Columbia, which will have the brunt of winter's chill. Colder than average temperatures, including an occasional face freezing frigidity in January and February. Of course, uh, better or normal winter temperatures still means cold because it's winter after all. Now, I don't know how much faith you put in the farmer's almanac. I've heard people say. Without, you know, any scientific proof necessarily to back it up, that uh, the Farmer's Almanac actually is very good, has a tremendous, like, couple hundred years history of uh, predicting weather or weather patterns. Last year's prediction called for a long, snowy winter, and hey, well, it turned out to be correct for much of the U.S. But where they're telling us that we may be in for another wild ride and heavy snow across the country, they call it a polar coaster, who knows? Maybe. I'll tell you this. The, the less I have to drive in the stuff, the happier I am. I'm okay. If Even getting snowed in, I'm a little bit of a prepper, so it's not like uh, I wouldn't have something to do. I have alternate means of heating my house. I have alternate means of uh, cooking my food if, you know, something really crazy happened and the power was off. Yeah, we could make it work. i got lots of books to read, some good uh, reading light, plenty of reading glasses. Perfect. But make me drive in the stuff and I start to get grumpy in a big hurry. It's going to be curious, too, if we have a really, really tough winter, I'm wondering if that is going to exacerbate some of the uh, flooding conditions and some of the uh, damaging, uh, you know, the crop damaging uh, things that happened this last spring. That could be problematic a couple of years in a row. And then, of course, I'm, you know, thinking also in terms of, well, and uh, by summer, as uh, the election season is really swinging into high gear, if it's a long, hot summer, I think a lot of people are already going to be on edge. And so that could uh, that could make things a little more interesting, too. Maybe we do want a bigger, heavier winter, a colder winter, if for no other reason that uh, it will force people to, uh, how you say in America, chill out. Well, I'll post a, I'll post a link to this article in the show notes you can check it out for yourself. I don't know how much faith to put in the farmer's almanac, but they're saying we're going to get a lot of snow. So, from a water standpoint, great. From a travel and, uh, you know, flooding standpoint once it starts to melt, that that could get interesting. And I suppose time will tell. Here's what else we have coming up on the agenda found a great article here by a college student. This was published back in April, actually. My generation is blind to the prosperity around us. Just a nice little shift in perspective. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about vaping. I have a theory that uh, President Trump may have caught his son barren with a vape pen, and that's why the FDA is now being ordered to uh, take certain flavor of vapes off of the, off of the market. Actually, we're going to talk about this from the standpoint of is this another place where government really needs to be intervening or is it something we could handle on our own? All this and much more coming up. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network and this is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. By the way, 801-331-8116. 8116 Wait a minute. Sorry, I gave you the wrong number. Somebody's going to be getting a weird call. Hey, what was it? 801-331-8113. Good gravy, Hyde. If you're going to give people the number, give them the right number. Otherwise, there will be unexplained calls and perhaps a little frustration on the part of somebody else who wasn't expecting a call. So here's this incredible article about how my generation is blind to the prosperity around us. It's by a college student by the name of Alyssa Algren. And I so enjoyed her take on this because it's not just the young people. It's uh, I think we all become a little bit blind to what's going on around us. And if you especially have found yourself struggling with, I don't know, some kind of a first world problem, it can be really easy to forget How good you actually have it. It's hard to maintain that perspective. And I understand because, you know, challenges come up. Things throw us off kilter and we have to figure out a way to do something. So listen to how Alyssa Algren sums this up. She says, I'm sitting in a small coffee shop near Nokomis, trying to think of what to write about. She says, I scroll through my newsfeed on my phone, looking at the latest headlines of Democratic candidates calling for policies to fix the so-called injustices of capitalism. And then she says, I put my phone down and continue to look around. I see people talking freely, working on their MacBooks, ordering food they get in an instant, seeing cars go by outside, and it dawned on me. We live in the most privileged time in the most prosperous nation, and we become completely blind to it. Vehicles, food, technology, freedom to associate with whom we choose. We take our high standard of living for granted. Now, she says these things are so ingrained in our American way of life that we don't give them a second thought. We are so well off here in the United States that our poverty line begins 31 times above the global average. Wow. 31 times. I had no idea. Virtually no one in the United States, she says, is considered poor by global standards. Yet in a time when we can order a product off Amazon with one click and have it at our doorstep the next day, We are unappreciative. We're unsatisfied and ungrateful. And she says our unappreciation is evident as the popularity of socialist policies among my generation continues to grow. Democratic Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez recently said to Newsweek, talking about the millennial generation, quote, an entire generation, which is now becoming one of the largest electorates in America, came of age and never saw American prosperity. End quote. Now, she says, never saw American prosperity. Let that sink in. She says, when I first read that statement, I thought to myself, that was quite literally the most entitled and factually illiterate thing I've ever heard in my 26 years on this earth. She says, I'm not attributing Miss Ocasio-Cortez's words to outright dishonesty. I think she wholeheartedly believes the words she said to be true. Many young people agree with her, which is entirely misguided. And she says, my generation is being indoctrinated by a mainstream narrative to actually believe we have never seen prosperity. I know this firsthand, she says, I went to college. Let's just say I didn't have the popular opinion, but uh, I, I digress. So Alyssa Algren wants to make the case for how capitalism leads to prosperity. Here's how she does it. She says, let me lay down some universal truths here real quick. The United States of America has lifted more people out of abject poverty, spread more freedom and democracy, has created more innovation in technology and medicine than any other nation in human history. And she says, not only that, but our citizenry continually breaks world records with charitable donations. The rags to riches story is not only possible in America, but not uncommon we have the strongest purchasing power on earth and we encompass 25% of the world's GDP. The list goes on. However, she says these universal truths don't matter because we're told that income inequality is an existential crisis. Even though this is not an indicator of prosperity, some of the poorest countries in the world have low income inequality. Yeah. Everybody's poor, but she says, we're told that we're oppressed by capitalism even though it's brought more freedom and wealth to the most people than any other system in world history. We're told that the only way we will acquire the benefits of true prosperity is through socialism and centralization of federal power, even though history has proven time and time again this is only going to bring tyranny and suffering. So she asks, why then with all the overwhelming evidence around us, evidence that I can see sitting at a coffee shop, do we not view this as prosperity? We have people who are dying to get into our country, people around the world destitute and truly impoverished. Yet we have a young generation convinced they've never seen prosperity. And as a result, they elect politicians dead set on taking steps towards abolishing capitalism. And she asks, why? Well, she says, the answer is this. My generation has only seen prosperity. We have no contrast. We didn't live in the Great Depression or live through two world wars or see the rise and fall of socialism and communism. We don't know what it's like not to live without the Internet. Without cars, without smartphones, we don't have a lack of prosperity problem. We have an entitlement problem, an ungratefulness problem. And she says, and it's spreading like a plague. With the current political climate giving rise to the misguided idea of a socialist utopia, will we see the light? Or will we have to lose it all to realize that what we have now is true prosperity? And she comes right out and says, destroying the free market will undo what millions of people have died to achieve. So Alyssa Algren says, my generation is becoming the largest voting block in the country. We have an opportunity to continue to propel us forward with the gifts capitalism and democracy has given us. The other option is that we can fall into the trap of entitlement and relapse into restrictive socialist destitution. The choice doesn't seem too hard, does it? This was originally printed on Alpha News, reprinted on the Foundation for Economic Education's website at fee.org. And again, this is from Alyssa Algren. Now, look, I understand what her point is about uh, for, for a lot of these young people, for her generation. It's very possible that uh, with when all you have known is prosperity, you do get a sense of being entitled. And I think this is probably true for most of us. <laughs> But I wouldn't lay it strictly at the feet of the millennials and say, well, you know, this is your problem. You guys figure it out. I think we all tend to uh, be prone to taking things for granted or at least being nonchalant about uh, about what it took. To enjoy the standard of living and to build the kind of standard of living that most of us enjoy. It takes a little bit of effort. And sometimes deliberate, conscious effort to really appreciate what you have. And she zeroes in on something here that's all too true. And unfortunately, you know, a lot of us have learned this the hard way. What's the saying? You don't really appreciate what you have until it's gone or you're in danger of losing it. And by the way, it's not just in material things. So we're talking prosperity. I don't want to give the impression the most important things you'll ever have you know, are sitting in your bank account or sitting in your garage or in a safe somewhere. This is one of the reasons why it's great to read old books and to study history. If for no other reason you can start to appreciate, once you put yourself into the mindset or into the shoes of a person in another time or another place, just how good we have it. I can't take any credit for this, but uh, my wife has done a really good job of instilling a really good work ethic in my adult kids. And it does me a lot of good to see them not taking things for granted. When I see them do dishes or something like that, I'm realizing, "Hey, these guys get it. There's not some magical group of elves that comes and does the dishes. It's it's whoever steps up and takes responsibility." And all we have to do is put them in a dishwasher. How's that for prosperous? credible, thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty, 801-331-8113. Let double-check here. Yep, that's the right phone number. 801 <laughs> 801- Three three one, eighty one thirteen. So before I go any further, I want to mention that one of our sponsors is Ammo.com. And I only mention this because what a great opportunity. You know, I, I mean, I don't know how many people actually, you know, relied on Walmart exclusively as, you know, their ammo supplier. But I've been buying ammo online for quite a few years now, at least 12 years. And I got to tell you, it is a... It's a great way to do things, and Ammo.com has the selection of uh, handgun, rifle, shotgun, rimfire, ammo, whatever you're looking for, I promise you, they have it. You can buy it in bulk, and you can uh, buy it you know, in smaller quantities. Here's one of the really cool things, though. When you go to the checkout, there's a little drop-down menu. They're going to ask you, would you like to make a donation? In other words, would you like us to donate 1% of your purchase to these organizations that support Liberty? And Loving Liberty, the Loving Liberty Radio Network, is one of those organizations. So if you would be so kind, you know, go to Ammo.com. Browse if you decide to purchase something. Just remember us in the drop-down menu there, and uh, they'll take care of the rest. By the way, they have wonderful articles as well, so you can stock up on not just physical ammo, but uh, intellectual and philosophical ammo as well, which it turns out may be some of the most important kind of ammo to, uh, to have at hand. So as we went to break, I was telling you about how I I appreciate how my wife has has taught my kids this work ethic. I've got a a boy who graduated high school earlier this spring, and uh, he went and worked in Alaska for the summer, started out on the fishing docks, ended up uh, changing jobs midsummer and going up and helping a friend build homes, which turned out to be a great opportunity for him. And now he's back home. And has just started work uh, for, you know, he's doing construction. And it's, you know, there's a lot of manual labor right now. He is uh, not one of the more skilled laborers, but he's learning. And I watched him that first couple days that he headed out to work. And he came home just dirty. He'd been using a shovel all day. And, I mean, they worked him. He, he was like a walking sweat stain. And, uh, and this is when, when it was still hot. It was before winter set in yesterday. Anyway. I saw an article yesterday by John Miltimore from the Foundation for Economic Education about how fewer young people are working and why that's a problem. And I think, I think the, the function of uh, my, my two sons, my two oldest boys, one just got back from a mission for our church, boom, fell right into a job. He's working part-time while he's going to school full-time. I mean, no complaints. That's a hard thing to do. Going to school full-time and, and working part-time or full-time is just not easy. But kudos to him for doing it. My other boy found work. You know, there's just there's a lot of opportunity. I think that's a function of where we live and the amount of growth and just uh, one of the best economies in the country. But you know what's keeping a lot of people out of jobs, especially young people? It's policies that make it more difficult to land their first job. And this is where John Miltimore is coming from. He says, in the summer of 1995, I took my first full-time job. It was seasonal work at Lake Arrowhead, a golf course about 20 minutes from my parents' house. Now, he says, I couldn't drive legally, at least not yet. I was only 15. But a friend who had also applied offered to drive us both if we got hired. And he says, and we did. That summer, he says, I worked 40 hours a week mowing lawns, repairing cart paths, and changing hole locations before sunrise. I was paid $5 an hour, 75 cents more than the federal minimum wage at the time, and was allowed to golf for free. Now, he says, I'm tempted to write how lucky I felt to have that job. But to be honest, I don't think I felt lucky at the time. Waking up at 5 a.m. is not a blast, especially for a growing 15-year-old and nine-hour days. Began to feel pretty long after a few weeks. He says, to make matters worse, in my second week on the job... I crashed a $40,000 riding mower into a tree and bent the deck. He says, I was sure I was going to be fired, but I must have appeared sufficiently contrite because they didn't sack me. As for free golfing, he says, I could barely enjoy it. Partly because I was often too pooped to walk nine holes after work and partly because I was a pretty lousy golfer at the time. But he says, looking back on things today, I can see that every, I can see everything that I took from that job. I learned how to wake up early, punch a time clock on time and drive a stick shift. I operated light machinery, received a crash course in landscaping and horticulture and learned how to take orders and execute directions. He says at the same time, I took home a couple thousand dollars after taxes, improved my slice and scavenged a few hundred golf balls from errant tee shots. Confession, he says, sometimes we'd hunt for golf balls in the woods in between weed whipping. Now, he says, I bring up my first job for a reason. Government data show that fewer and fewer young Americans are getting something important, and that is job experience. So let's talk about this trend of fewer young people in the labor force. The Bureau of Labor Statistics, or BLS, released data last week projecting the labor participation rate of younger people, this would mean people ages 16 to 24, to drop from 55.2% to 51.7% over the next decade. Now, a decade ago, the labor participation rate, basically the sum of employed workers divided by the working age population of this demographic, was was 58.8%. A decade before that, it was 66%. So to put that projection into perspective, a decade from now, the labor participation rate of young people will barely be higher than the period following the Great Recession. When the employment rate for younger people briefly fell below 50%. It dropped to 48.8%, a historic low. Now, there are various factors behind this labor trend. Not all of them are necessarily bad. A recent report published by the Brookings Institute states the trend is primarily driven by an increase in school enrollment and time spent on education-related activities. And that would suggest, in contrast to stereotypes of lazy young people who just want to play video games, that many young people are simply choosing to invest more in their own human capital. This is not the only factor driving down youth employment, however. He says the BLS report cites displaced opportunities as another as older workers fill jobs historically held by younger workers. Indeed, BLS data show the labor participation rate of each of America's three oldest demographics, 55 to 64, 64 to 74 and 75 and older, increasing over the next decade. So, John Miltimore said he spoke to economist Anthony Davies, and he said two policies in particular contribute to this generational employment shift. First, the Federal Reserve's low interest rates, while good news for borrowers, have reduced retirees' interest income to the point that many have been forced to re enter the workforce. Second, rising minimum wages make it more expensive for employers to take risks on young, untried employees. Davies, a professor of economics at Duquesne University and co-host of Fee's Words and Numbers podcast, said if one wanted deliberately to enact policies aimed at shutting young workers out of entry level jobs and replacing them with with former retirees, these two policies would be at the top of the list. So rising minimum wages and artificially low interest rates. Now, Miltimore says in an era that places education on a pedestal, it's easy to forget the value of work. But he says it's important to remember that jobs, especially a first job, are much more than a paycheck. A first job can mean a connection to a lifelong mentor, the ability to envision a career path, a boost in self-confidence, an appreciation for the value of education, an off ramp from a life on the streets, a belief that you can be something wrote Danielle Gray and Bethany Henderson, two Obama administration officials who worked on youth job initiatives. And John Miltimore says this is one more reason that policies that make it more difficult to land that first job should be avoided. He says, I'm fairly certain Lake Arrowhead would not have hired me 25 years ago if they'd had to pay me $15 an hour to cut grass, change hole locations and drive around on Cushman's all day getting a suntan. And who could blame them? But he says the irony here is that I would have been the one losing out. Lake Arrowhead golf course would have managed just fine. That's an interesting thought. Low interest rates and minimum wage laws make it tougher for young people to find work. I hadn't really realized that, uh, you know, that... What, what brings retirees back into the workforce is uh, we're not earning enough on our investments. I guess I'm just far enough from retirement. To, uh, frankly, I'm not even planning on retiring. The joke is, well, I was planning on working through lunch on the day of my funeral. And I think that's probably how it's going to work out. But I'm grateful for those people who uh, give young people a chance to enter the workforce. If you know a business owner who creates jobs for young people, they deserve your support. They deserve accolades. Not more pressure. They used to be paying more. All right, we'll leave this alone for now. Got to take a quick break. We'll pay a couple of bills. We'll be back. This is Loving Liberty. Welcome back to Loving Liberty eight zero one three three one eighty one thirteen. All right, let's talk about vaping. Now, I, I as hard as I try, I'm still going to sound like I'm judging, or at least I feel like that. Maybe, maybe this is just my guilty conscience going. Well, oh, these people who vape. But I, I have a confession. I would rather be in the presence of a person who is vaping than a person who is smoking tobacco anytime. And it's not that I hate anybody, okay? So please don't get the idea that I'm I'm trying to put anybody down here, but I I the, the tobacco smoke immediately makes my nose stuff up. I I don't know if I have an allergy or it's just something. I just, you know, the the hardest part about ever uh, doing anything in Vegas is where well, everywhere you go it smells like cigarette smoke, you know, the casinos, yeah, everybody can smoke, it's fine. Vaping, I'm not trying to make the case it's good for you. But most of the people who I know who vape started vaping as a means of weaning themselves away from tobacco. Now, I don't know. Maybe they're still hooked on vaping. I, you know, the, the nicotine in, in the cartridges, I'm sure um, nicotine, I believe, is an addictive substance. But why is the president ordering the FDA to uh, to criminalize certain flavors of vape cartridges And there's a lot of, uh, I don't know, the press has really been all over this. The fact I'm talking about it, too, probably means I'm just buying into it. But um, I ran into a friend yesterday and she was vaping. And because it's been so much in the news, I just had to tease her. Hey, that stuff will kill you. And she's like, oh, my gosh, everybody I run into is telling me this. And I'm certainly not encouraging people. Hey, take it up. Try it. See if it makes your lungs feel better. But. When I hear that the Trump administration is trying to clear the market of flavored e-cigarettes amid a vaping crisis, I'm a skeptic because I don't think that crisis really is a crisis. I think it's a it's a solution looking for a problem. And the logic behind this. Catherine Manju Ward says, you know, the intense stupidity of this logic. Number one, black market vape cartridges make people sick. So, number two, let's pass a bunch of regulations to push more popular types of vape cartridges into that same black market. Number three, lives will be saved. Wait, no, that won't work at all. I don't know what the answer is, but more government doesn't really seem like like the right approach. I want to share with you a quote from Calvin Coolidge. And I'm saying this with the understanding there's no way that this guy could ever get elected, much less to president today. But listen to what he had to say. Calvin Coolidge said, perhaps one of the most important accomplishments of my administration has been minding my own business. He says, government shouldn't play a part in everyday life. Jefferson said that the people should be left to manage their own affairs. His opposition will bear careful analysis and the country could stand a good deal more of its application. But he says the trouble with us is we talk about Jefferson, but we do not follow him in this theory that people should manage their government and not be managed by it. He was everlastingly right. Again, these are the words of Calvin Coolidge. I know for some people, the reflex thing is, well, yeah, but in an industrialized nation, that's just not going to fly. A modern state? I think it would. I think that we've just had a lot of uh, generations of people being indoctrinated that, hey, we've got to have the government step in and do something, do anything. And I'm not so sure that this whole vaping thing isn't a part of that. I still have to laugh. Uh, I, I can't remember who posted it. It was somewhere on... Uh, oh, it was, uh, it was my friend uh, Stephen Kent from Young Voices had posted on uh, Twitter. You know, there was a theory going around that maybe Barron Trump, you know, Trump's son, had been caught with an e-cigarette. And I don't know, maybe that's a possibility. I suppose, uh, I suppose he could have been caught with a cigarette, but... Or an e-cigarette... Is it really the function of the federal government to get in there and, and to regulate this and tell people not to do it? Uh, look, the, the thing that seems to be driving a lot of this is what? Six people apparently have died from some lung condition. And now, of course, you've got the DEA weighing in. Well, you know, we found that opioids or other illegal substances were in a lot of these vape cartridges. Just because some people have misused that does not mean that every person needs to be punished just in case. I mean if you want more nanny state this is this is a pretty good this is a pretty good way of going about getting a nanny state. I just happen to think we could do better. But it comes back to the idea of uh, if you want if you want to avoid that smothering embrace of the nanny state At some level, you've got to draw the line and say, government needs to mind its own business. And in my opinion, that's getting tougher for people to figure out today. What part of my life is off limits to government interference? Now, that's not a call to, hey, man, I can do whatever I want to anybody and never have to face the consequences. I think you probably understand that. But what part of your life would you consider sacred enough that uh, you would not allow government interference there? If you have to think about it for a few minutes, and most of us probably do, there's there not there aren't that many areas of our lives left where we can say this, and that is a concern. So. Yeah, I'm not encouraging anybody. Go start uh, vaping. Don't you know? Go start using e-cigarettes. Not at all. No more than I would be telling anybody. Hey, maybe you should pick up a two-pack-a-day habit of just regular old cigarettes. Make up your own mind. Make your own choices, but try to be informed about it. And gosh, stop leaning on Big Mother to jump in and fix everything for us. Because one of these days somebody's going to get the idea that it's not just you know the unhealthy stuff like smoking and drinking and whatnot. Somebody's going to say, "Hey, it's the eating that's killing us." And and phew, you look at uh, the statistics for heart disease and cancers and so forth that are directly attributable to what people are eating in their diet. Well, why don't we just go ahead and open that up to uh, government regulation? I mean, come on! I'm sure they would take good care of us and tell us exactly what we need to do. Can you imagine having to go through the rigmarole of, you know, everything has to meet these government specifications? Well, we've uh, looked at your grocery list, Mr. Jones, and it looks like you're a little bit uh, low on healthy foods. I could see a lot of mischief coming about as, as a result of this. Freedom's a tricky thing, isn't it? If you really want to enjoy it, you've got to be willing to let other people utilize their freedom, even if it means they will utilize it in ways that do not personally resonate with you. So the guy standing there blowing out big clouds of fruity vapor, you know, from his vape pen, that may not be your thing. Okay, it's not my thing either. But there's a moral line that's being crossed And it's the line that separates moral from immoral when a person says, well, there ought to be a law. We should step in. We should use the power of the state. We should force people to toe this line. But but Brian, what if people are being harmed? I don't know. Are there other areas where people are being harmed? Or they're primarily harming themselves? It sounds to me like what you're dealing with then is a vice more so than a crime. Vices, according to Lysander Spooner, are mistakes that people make in the pursuit of their own happiness. Well, that would mean pretty much any of us. But the people they're harming are primarily themselves. And while I'm not going to sit there and try to persuade somebody, hey, man, drink up or hey, smoke up. If they're an adult... They should be able to make those decisions. They don't need the FDA breathing over their shoulder. And this is one of those instances where I I hope Trump supporters be grateful for the good things that Trump has done. But understand, your boy has an authoritarian streak. And this is one of those places where it's being manifest right now. We got to do better. You want to be treated like an adult, like a full grown man capable of... Conducting his own affairs and actually living in a state of freedom or liberty? That means you got to take responsibility. Stop outsourcing it to the state. And thus endeth our sermon. We're going to talk about uh, some of the gun policies being debated in Washington when we continue next hour on Loving Liberty. thoughtful discussion. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network.